The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Monstrous Regiment, featuring a roundtable of Dominion women seeking to honor Jesus Christ in applying God's Word fearlessly and faithfully in all callings and seasons of life, both in and out of the home, reversing the curse and smashing pagan strongholds. Lewis's stepson tells the story of how his American grandparents attended a public debate featuring C.S. Lewis and Dorothy Sayers versus a couple of atheists. As the story goes, Dorothy Sayers walked onto the stage wearing a suit of brown tweeds and smoking a cheroot kind of cigar. Joy Davidman's mother turned to her and said, well, if that's what brains does for you, I'm glad I'm not intellectual. <laughs> True story heard it from the horse's mouth. Yeah. Today we're delighted to discuss that remarkable poet, playwright, detective novelist, translator, essayist, lay theologian, and cheroot smoker, Dorothy Lee Says. I'm Susanna Roundtree, my co-host is Cheryl Nicholson, and we are the Monstrous Regiment. Good evening. So just to give you a little bit of a background on Dorothy, she was born in 1893, I believe it was. That's right. And she died in 1957. And in between those years, she packed a whole lot of living. Um, I've been reading a number of her biographies. One of the, my favorite biographies on her is this one here called uh, Dorothy L. Sayers, A Careless Rage for Life. Uh, it was written by David Coombs. And uh, what this man did was he basically went and read a lot of her, her own writings, her letters, she was a copious letter writer. And so a lot of what comes out in this story is actually her, her own thoughts um, written in her own words. It sounds like an amazing read. It is. It's, it's probably one of the best ones. Uh, it was Now, the, the official biography on Dorothy was written by James Brabazon, I think is how you say his name. This was written subsequent to it. Um, just to, she grew up um, in an isolated, her, she was actually born near Oxford. Uh, her father was uh, a rector. He was also the director of the, the a choir at Oxford University. But soon after, I think she was only three or four, they moved to a different place. And she grew up um, basically on her own with a series of, governesses and and tutelage by her father uh, eventually she ended up going to school um, she was sent away like most children were at that time sent away to school and she was very um, awkward probably because she'd been kept so isolated and this is one of the things that we find with uh, homeschoolers who are kept home too much is that they don't really learn how to interact with other people too well and so she went through all that sort of um, awkward stage in her teen years uh, trying to learn how to interact with the girls and and it wasn't really a very happy experience for her she eventually um, ended up going home but not before she had gotten really ill with the measles um, as a result of that illness she ended up losing all her hair and from that point forward she um, 
she struggled with alopecia or, or baldness the rest of her life. And whenever she was under periods of high stress, her hair would fall out on her. Um, despite that, uh, she was able to go home and finish all her work that she needed to do. And she did such a good job of it that she won scholarships that enabled her to go to, to Oxford University for her, her um, higher education. And uh, this was before women were officially allowed to take degrees, wasn't it? Yes, women were allowed to study uh, at that point. Now, initially, when women went to Oxford, they couldn't attend class unless they had a chaperone with them. So the chaperone had to attend class with them. They subsequently allowed women to attend classes without chaperones, but they still liked them to have chaperones when they were going out around on the campus. And men were not allowed into um, their quarters unless they were family members or spiritual advisors. Consequently, the girls had lots of spiritual advisors. Oh dear. <laughs> so what did um, she study at university? Do you uh, she took, uh, well, she studied languages. She was very... Uh, she did really well in French. I think she actually, uh, part of her degree was uh, around languages. And um, see, she, she went there in 1912 was when she started. Uh, and Somerville College was kind of, it's interesting because it kind of became the model for her one of her best detective novels, in my opinion, which was Gaudy Night. It was a women's Great. college. Yeah. Um, she published her first book. was actually a piece of poetry. Um, it was. I have read it, and I love it. I don't know if you've read it. It's Catholic uh, Tales and Christian Songs. Yes. I haven't read it yet, but I have read snippets out of it. And actually, um, she started, she was actually writing poetry when she was, like, very young. Um, there was one here <laughs> that I was reading, and I thought, oh, my goodness, like this kid. She was seven years old when she wrote this one. Now, I couldn't do this at seven years old, but this is what this kid did. The spider with eight long legs was there. The cricket and the grasshopper fought for the chair. The beetle and the ladybird each took their seat. The dragonflies came with their butterflies fleet. The small tortoise shell came with puss moth, his bride. The clear wings also, their larvae beside. And then there swam in all the fish of the sea, in company with the wasp, hornet, and bee. When all was prepared, they had nothing to say, so sullen, sullen and moody, they all went away. <laughs> now, can you imagine doing that at seven years old? <laughs> I can't imagine doing something like that at seven years old, no. no. I mean, I was amazed when I found out The Catholic Tales and Christian Songs was actually her first book, because it's such high-quality um, writing and poetry is hard you've yes. got a seven-year-old who comes out with that wow <laughs> yeah well she loved words and that was quite evident like she was just a master or a mistress <laughs> of them um right from the get-go in fact um she was a bit of a show-off as far as her french was uh when she showed up in in godolphin school which was her like her elementary school um she totally blew everybody out of the water with how well she could speak French. And um, 
Yeah, well, she'd later, she'd later do uh, my favourite translation of the Song of Roland, which is originally in medieval French, and um, she did a wonderful, wonderful translation of that. But we're getting ahead of ourselves because that yeah. wasn't closer to the end of our life. Yeah. Uh, so anyways, uh, poetry was her first thing. And then she um, ended up as a copywriter in Benson's advertising agency, which again became the site of another one of her novels, um, Murder Must Advertise. And uh, while she was there, she started publishing her first Lord Peter Whimsey novels. And, you know, it's funny, when I started reading those novels, I thought, I'm familiar. There's something familiar about this guy. <laughs> and I realized later on, he's like the um, serious version of Bertie Wooster in P.G. Woodhouse's. <laughs> Yeah, so imagine a serious Bertie Wooster solving crimes, and yeah. that's what um, Dorothy says is detective novels alike. She she calls him a, a combination of Booty, Bertie Wooster and Fred Astaire. <laughs> I can definitely see Bertie. I'm not so sure about Fred Astaire, though. Well, the debonair you know, ah, yes. man about town type of thing. Um, anyways, it was during her time at Benson's that uh, her novels really started to take off and the royalties started to come in and she actually got a contract as well with an American publishing company that allowed her to leave that world and just devote herself to writing for the rest of her life. And so that's how she, she earned her income. And she did well enough that she was able to um, buy a little flat in uh, London where she lived the rest of her life. Um, so what was, so was going on in her personal life at, at that time? Um, she yeah. had quite a stormy time, didn't she? Yes. Um, she, she had a real division between her personal life and her public life. And yet the, the funny thing about her is, um, I use the phrase, she was hiding in plain sight. Once you read her biography, you can see where her experiences actually show up in her novels. Mm. Um, so her experience at, uh, with relationships with men and her experience with uh, writing advertising copy and being in that milieu, her experience of being in college, being the backdrop for one of her novels. Um, when she was a young woman in her early 20s, she got involved with a young man who was kind of one of these uh, posers. He was a poser. He liked to think he was really artistic and highbrow and everything and uh, rather avant-garde, and he didn't believe in marriage, but she was head over heels in love with him, and he persuaded her to go against her own morals, and she, she called she basically called it sinning the greatest sin. And it was a sin that had ramifications for the rest of her life because um, uh, everything else that came afterwards kind of built on that, that failed relationship. That man subsequently dumped her and then went back to the U.S. and married after telling her that he didn't believe in marriage, which was really quite a bitter blow to her. She had a rebound relationship with another man who was completely the opposite. He was kind of like a um, blue-collar worker. And as a result of that relationship, she got pregnant and um, had a baby out of wedlock secretly. 
And uh, that child was subsequently raised by her cousin, Ivy. Um, it was always Dorothy's hope that she'd be able to be in a position where she could raise him herself. And the main reason why she didn't acknowledge him openly was because she was afraid that the shock of, of her having a baby out of wedlock would be too much for her parents. So her to, parents never found out about it? Her parents never knew. They knew that she had an interest in this child. She, she didn't neglect him. She would go and see him every weekend, and she represented herself as being like a kind of a godparent or an aunt to him. And when she later on got married, she sort of adopted him, but she didn't do it legally because um, it would have meant having to produce a, a birth certificate that only had her and no, no father's name on it. So that would have kind of outed her then, and her parents were still alive at the time. Uh, she ended up marrying a man who um, had gone through the First World War and come home very damaged. He had been married and had two children by his first wife, but when he came back from the war, he just couldn't return home. And he was, he, his first wife described him as a very changed man. He was not the man who had left her. Uh, he was a journalist, and so... And he had a love of life and a rather what um, Dorothy called a careless rage for life as well. He seemed to match her on those grounds. And so because of that, um, she thought that they, they would be a really good couple together. And initially, they did really well together. But I think the, the effects of the trauma from the war, whether it was physical, because I don't know if he went through mustard gas or the percussive effects uh, that cause brain injury in a lot of soldiers, whatever the cause was, he eventually became so ill and subsequently died from complications of uh, his experience there. Um, but by the time that that had happened, she had more or less resigned herself that she was going to stay in this marriage till the bitter end, and she did. The other thing that, that happened in that was because he was also a writer, and she was a very successful writer. There was some professional jealousy that he couldn't, um, couldn't overcome. So he resented her success where he was not able to be successful in that field. Mm -hmm. um, she became friends with C.S. Lewis. She was not a member of the Inklings because, of course, they were in Oxford and she was not. But she carried on quite a lengthy um, correspondence with him and uh, I liked one of the things that uh, on the front of this cover here she, this book called letters to a diminished church which is um, a bunch of her essays on theology it has a quote by C.S. Lewis at the top it says I liked Dorothy Sayers originally because she liked me and later for the extraordinary zest and edge of her conversation so she was you know they could meet each other intellectually and um, but what's really interesting is that like he he could see her blind spots and he knew how to call her on them. So okay, I found that quite quite fascinating about her. But yeah, that's uh, she died in 1957. And, and by that time, she'd shifted from writing detective novels to more theological theology. works. Yeah, yeah. She she had a very successful. Uh, set of plays called The Man Who Would Be Born King. 
And uh, it caused quite a bit of controversy in the church because they thought that, you know, King James English was the only holy way to talk about God. <laughs> and uh, her introduction, which we're going to get go over a little bit more thoroughly in the second session that we do on this, um, talks about uh, the difficulties that she had bringing this, this piece of work to, to the BBC. And it was done as radio plays, but it was very successful because she was able to communicate the essence of the gospel in a way that people could grasp it and see it. And so yeah, it's a very important work. She, she retranslated from the Greek, from the original Greek texts of the Old Testament into um, up-to-date modern English, um, trying to, I, I was reading her uh, introduction and she was so, she, she talks about how she was trying to hang on to the sense of what was being said, but put it in, into language that would be forceful to people at the time. And, um, and a lot of people found that quite confronting. <laughs> But yeah. um, interestingly enough, um, I, I believe I believe she she was commissioned to write those plays in 1940. So World War II was going on, and around the same time, you also had C.S. Lewis um, giving his mere Christianity uh, broadcasts. Yes. Interestingly enough, after the war had ended, that was when Lewis switched. He did something a little bit opposite to Dorothy says, where he switched from doing a lot of um, from, from doing a lot of apologetic writing. And start and started focusing on more on things like his Chronicles of Narnia because yes. he felt that people were particularly receptive during the war years um, to hearing about Jesus. So that, that so Dorothy says as um, man born to be king was definitely a part of that wartime mm -hmm. um, openness. And you know to to think of that sort of play being reproduced and put out onto the airwaves like here in Canada on CBC, which would be our equivalent of the BBC. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just not going to happen, but, it, but yet it could happen then, which just shows how far we've shifted. Yeah. Uh, and perhaps how, how um, strategic uh, good Christian fiction can be. Yes. You know, one of the things that I really loved and, and which she did was she was able to convey her worldview and her ideas about life and about relationships and stuff, but she didn't do it in a preachy way. She just wove it into her stories. And it came across so naturally. Like you were able to get, at least as an adult now, I, re I confess when I first read her books back when I was in my late teens, early 20s, I didn't get it then. Yeah. But reading it now as an older adult, I'm like, oh, my goodness, there's so much insight here. Yes. And she did it so skillfully. Yes. Um, as a, there's, a, there's a way of doing that <laughs> as, a, as a writer myself. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, I, I really credit uh, authors like Dorothy Sayers and C.S. Lewis and Jane Austen and, you know, William Shakespeare and so many of these people uh, produced great uh, Christian art that we don't think of as being Christian art That's and right. because it's just great art, but that maybe we're getting into the topic that we would <laughs> cover in uh, part two. Yes. How appalling Christian art is <laughs> these days compared to these guys. <laughs> yeah, that's, well, she, yeah. That's for another day. <laughs> she was, um, she was excellent at her job. She really was. Um, one of the things she did later on in life was, um, as I mentioned a, a while ago, the translations she did a 
translation of the Song of Roland into English. She did a translation of the Divine Comedy, yes. uh, Dante's Inferno, and um, the other three, the other two parts of that into English. And those translations are still classics today. Um, when I read those uh, works, I read them in her translation, and she she actually. Um, even even just her introduction to the Song of Roland and her notes on the Divine Comedy, she she provided detailed notes on the whole poem. Um, even those are just well worth reading just for themselves. Yes. Uh, she was she was such a fantastic writer. She when it comes to her detective fiction, she she was writing during a period when uh, when that was really popular. Um, these days we would call it the golden age of detective fiction. You know, you yeah. think of people like Agatha Christie and Josephine yeah. Tay and G.K. Chesterton. Um, I've read a bunch of these different authors and yeah. um, I have to say my professional opinion, um, Sayers was easily the best of a lot of them. I enjoyed all those writers. In fact, I've read pretty much all of their stuff. But, okay. yeah, I'd have to agree. She she was just hands down one of the best. and and She's, her detective novels are a great place to start because they are the quality of the writing is so well done. Um, the stories are so well knit together. Mm -hmm. um, they're just yeah, they were they were a great introduction that led me into her works of nonfiction. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, like her her plots, her plotting, her her books are sort of like complex brain teasers just in novel form um and then you've got and then you've got the characters who have all sorts of um depth and conflict which grows much greater as the series progresses mm -hmm. um she used her books to talk about all sorts of um all sorts of things from like cryptanal cryptanalysis to um <clears throat> like nazism the ethics of advertising and veterans of world war one and and all these things that she had experienced in her life, as we mentioned before, like uh, even her experiences with the uh, that that relationship with the um, that first one with the poet, um, that that wound up um, being the foundation of a lot of what she wrote in her uh, in her novels, uh, Strong Poison, Happy's Carcass, and Gordy Knight. Um, she, yes, it, it was just such a rich vein of experience that she could then turn around and talk about in the um, in the guise of fiction and you know and you've got all this stuff going on in her books and they're still incredibly witty and entertaining they're just fun reads yeah and and Harriet Vane who is the protagonist in Strong Poison and Gaudy Night mm -hmm. um, she and I think have was it have his carcass no there was another yes, one. have his carcass have his carcass yeah she was kind of like the alter ego yes. of so so it's Dorothy is is speaking her philosophy of life and relationships and stuff through Harriet Vane's mouth and uh, she had some pretty profound stuff to say yes I I have really enjoyed rereading those books um like you I read them first when I was a teenager and they I just straight over my head um but I've revisited them again this year and been so excited to see how rich they are Yes. Um, interestingly enough, I was reading up on her life, and apparently um, there were a bunch of critics around who, like, who looked down their noses at her works. They 
they said oh you know they pretend to be realistic but they're really just popular and romantic and I, I thought that comment was so revealing um, <laughs> <laughs> there was one other critic who was more friendly and he pointed out his name was Sean Latham he wrote out he wrote um says primary crime lay in her attempt to transform the detective novel into something other than an ephemeral bit of popular culture and I thought that was insightful as well because you know um a lot of a lot of elitism runs on a, this Gnostic idea where we, we're the ones with the special knowledge and the special insight and nobody else gets to have that. And so that kind of person does dislike popular fiction just because it is popular. And so when you have highly educated academics like Sayers or Tolkien or Lewis who write things like detective stories or science fiction or heroic epic like The Lord of the Rings and they write, and write, write that kind of story with, so much intelligence and so much literary skill that blurs the line between the you know the great highbrow art and the popular lowbrow art and it blurs the line between the elites the intellectual elites and the people ordinary people yeah but uh the thing is that these books tolkien and c.s lewis and and sayers they stand the test of time because mm -hmm. they get into your feels <laughs> like people can identify and there there was something very um she was very highbrow she was a scholar but she was also a very earthy type of person at the same time yeah. and um her friends enjoyed her immensely because she was just a very rollicking sort of individual who was very down to earth and probably more earthy than a lot of us would like to think and Yet she had such insight. Uh, I don't know. She kind of blows me away. I I, I sound quite goofy. Me away too. Yeah. Well, I I get kind of like goofy when I start talking about her because I'm just like, wow, she's just awesome. <laughs> we can fan girl together. That's yeah, fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I yeah I, I definitely think that Gordy Knight is the best of her detective novels so if you want for my money the best detective novel of the golden age of detective novels is gaudy knight it's such a such a great whodunit but it's also a novel of ideas yes um, so as we mentioned before it, it takes place at uh, a fictional women's college at oxford obviously drawing on um Cesar's own experiences there it's told from the perspective of harriet vane at this stage in the books she's been turning down peter whimsy's proposals of marriage for a few years anyway she goes back to her old university for a reunion and um, discovers that they have a vandalism problem and so because this is in the 1930s um this is only about 15 years after oxford began giving degrees to women um so so in the story, the professors of the women's college, they were quite worried that if news gets out, there'll be a big scandal. Um, the college's reputation will be harmed and, um, and, and people will look down on women's education and say, well, this is what happens when you educate women. They're too hysterical and they can't, um, they don't have self-control. And anyway, so because of all this, the college asks Harriet to investigate on a confidential basis. And at the same time, um, in the story, uh, she she's still thinking about um, Peter's still proposing to her on a regular basis, and uh, he's finally beginning to convince her. So, um, so all this sets up a, a story that spends a lot of time talking about questions like the place of women in society, 
and women's education and women in calling and women in marriage. Mm -hmm. And this was only part of what Sayers had to say um, on so many different topics, uh, but we thought it would be fun to just talk about some of the things that she says in this book just for this um, edition of the podcast. Yeah. One of the things that I really loved about Gordy Knight um, when I read it a couple of months back was that Harriet is, she's, you know, an educated woman. She's a professional novelist in her early 30s. And that's it's pretty much where I am in life right now. And so all the questions that Harriet is wrestling with in this book are the ones that I've also spent a lot of time thinking about, like um, should a professional woman take on family responsibilities? Is it possible to be both an intellectual and a family woman? Is vocation and calling more important than marriage and family? And uh, last but not least, will marriage to Peter destroy Harriet as an individual or can it truly be a union of equals? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think she did a really good job of uh, portraying the, the various tensions that women face in all of those different scenarios um, mm. because she addresses it from the point of view of a woman who's not educated and has devoted herself entirely to her family and her children and her man, my man, mm. right or wrong, uh, yeah. to the women who have um, devoted themselves to work and given up any idea of marriage or that type of relationship and then everything in between. Yeah, like there's, there's, this, there's this side character who's a young student at the college and... Um, and she's a workaholic and um, and it turns out being very bad for her health and so um, she, so she has to be encouraged to um, step back from her work and start cultivating the relationships in her life so that she can be more healthy in how she does pursue her work and so you've got you've got the kind of thing that you can only have in fiction where you're talking about ideas, but you're talking about them in a very nuanced way from a huge amount of different perspectives and showing mm -hmm. how different people, um, the different things that different people have trouble with. Yeah. And, and the way she does it is she doesn't lecture. She just lets it happen naturally through the mouths of the characters. And, and it's just so natural the way it comes out. But so exactly. profound. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's something that fiction is really good at. Says herself once said that she didn't like to call herself a feminist. She has a couple of speeches. One of them is, are women human? And yeah. uh, there was a follow-up, um, the human, non-human or something. Um, you, you can get both of those essays in uh, a book called Are Women Human? That, there it is, beautiful. But... At the start of Our Women Human, she says, under present conditions, an aggressive feminism might do more harm than good. So she saw that there were, there were problems with um, feminism, but at the same time, she, she thoroughly believed that her culture had a problem with, treating, with how they treated women. She thought that they treated them not as human individuals, but as a sort of um, collective. And if I can just read a quote, a great quote from Our Women Human. She says, what we ought to mean by the statement a woman is as good as a man is something so obvious that it is apt to escape attention altogether, viz. Not that every woman is, in virtue of her sex, as strong, clever, artistic, level-headed, industrious, and so forth as any man that can be mentioned, but that a woman is just as much an ordinary human being as a man. 
with the same individual preferences and with just as much right to the tastes and preferences of an individual. Mm-hmm. What is repugnant to every human being is to be reckoned always as a member of a class and not as an individual person. Yeah. A certain amount of classification is, of course, necessary for practical purposes. There is no harm in saying that women as a class have smaller bones than men, wear lighter clothing, have more hair on their heads and less on their faces, go more pertinaciously to church or the cinema, or have more patience with small and noisy babies. What is unreasonable and irritating is to assume that all one's tastes and preferences have to be conditioned by the class to which one belongs. That has been very common error into which men have frequently fallen about women, and it is the error into which feminist women are perhaps a little inclined to fall into about themselves. <laughs> it's so profound. Yeah. I, one of the things that I, I kind of got out of that is, um, I, I mean, she's talking about it in terms of women being classified as women. Mm-hmm. But really, what she's pointing out is the lazy way that we have of thinking about other people that we collectivize them either as men or women or aboriginals or australians or and then we assign certain categories certain characteristics to that and and by doing so dehumanize them and objectify them in a way that allows us to sin against them much more easily yeah and i think part of the reason for that is because if you're going to take a full-orbed human being made in the image of god and, and just reduce them to a few characteristics, a few distinctives that makes mm-hmm. them a little bit different from other people, then, then what you, you, you're basically reducing this whole human being into one or two things, like the colour of their skin or yeah. um, the, the geographical location where they live or whether they might be male or female. Exactly. And that's not something, that's not something that um, God judges he looks on the inside you know he looks on the, the heart and, the, and our deeds um, but it's something that we we're so prone to as human beings so for instance if you have let's say you have an unfortunate experience in a relationship with a man mm-hmm. or what a lot or men have unfortunate relationships with women they come out of that and they go I'm never dating or I'm never getting married because all women are blah, 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 or all men are blah, blah, blah. And, and so it, it strips away the individuality of particular men and particular women and treats them as a class and then enables the person who's doing that to just dispose of them and not do yeah. right by them. Yeah. So. Which completely ignores the foundation of Christian ethics, which is, you know, self-government under under God through the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, you have to have an you have to have an individual who's obeying God before you can have a family or a church or a society that um, that is living a Christian life. And so mm-hmm. and so you've really got to start at an individual level before you can build up to a community level. And, you know, we, we believe that um, we believe that in the Christian life, both the individual and the corporate are um, important because that's part of the, um, that's part of the doctrine of the Trinity, as Rush Jr. points out in the one and the many, you, you know, 
the individuals of the Trinity are not more important than the um, than the Godhead itself, and but also the Godhead is not more important in, than the individuals. But you've also you've that requires us to interact with the people around us in a way that fully takes into account their full individuality as made in the image of God without mm-hmm. flattening those distinctions. Yeah. I was also going to say that God does judge covenant institutions like families, churches, and nations. And, and you know, these, these institutions, these corporate entities are important. But these, these are... Um, but we don't, but God doesn't judge people according to things like their sex or their race or their class. Um, in fact, in Galatians, Paul specifically says that as long as we're in Christ, there's no difference between male and female, Jew and Gentile, slave and free. Right. All of us as individuals have the capacity for self-government in the Holy Spirit apart from how we were created or uh, what social class we were created into. Or our economic status. Or economic status, yeah. Yeah, all those distinctives are flattened in the gospel. That wall of division that came down was not just between Jew and Gentile, it was between male and female and rich and poor as well. Exactly. And I think I was thinking about it while I was preparing this podcast, and I I, I thought, you know, when, when God does judge entities corporately, they're actually... Um, covenantal entities, mm-hmm. meaning they're, they're entities that have been founded on two people having similar um, similar ethics, similar values, and deciding to come together, like in a marriage or in a uh, business partnership or in a um, or in a country. You have one or more people coming together on the basis of a shared ethic. Um, you. When, when, you, when you're talking about things like gender and race and class, those things aren't built on shared ethics. They're, they're ontological qualities. They're not ethical covenantal right. obligations. And so when God does judge corporate entities and when he, um, and, and when he considers them in history, he's looking at, um, he's looking at the ethical uh, glue that binds them together. He's not looking at the, um, at the accidents of their... Um, birth and station in life. Right. So if all that's true, then the most important thing about being a woman is not necessarily the various physical and mental distinctives that we have. You can't reduce us to those distinctives, even though they may be important. But you have to deal with women as individual humans, which is what says is really trying to emphasise um, I think um, our, our mutual friend, Laura Bevada, would agree um, that with Dorothy's approach, because I've heard Laura say often, we're human beings first and Christians yeah. first, and then we're men or women. Yeah. And so that's basically what Dorothy did was she flattened that distinctive down to we're human beings first and treat us that way as opposed to um, women. There was one little quote that I'd read about her. <laughs> she said the way that a lot of men view women is um, uh, the ladies, God help us, or <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
What was the other? It was something like um, women, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them. Yes, exactly. Sort of a condescending or an, oh no, here they come, the monstrous regiment. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's us. <laughs> yeah, so Sayers believed you have to deal with women as individual humans, and that was really the basis of everything that she talks about in Gordy Night. Um, and, and, and it was... And, and she really um, emphasised this in Our Women Human as well. She was talking about, for example, women's education. And when people were debating over whether women should be educated or not, um, people were asking questions like, do women really want to know about Aristotle? Would women be better off knowing about Aristotle? Would knowing about Aristotle help women to be, you know, better wives? And, um, and Dorothy says, is saying, well, you know, for goodness sake, I don't know about other women, but I want to know about Aristotle. Yeah. And what is there to stop me? Like, I have an individual calling here to know about Aristotle. Yeah. And so it doesn't really matter what women as a class need or want or should have as you've got to look at the individual. Right. Yeah, and, and I think one of the things that, uh, one of the tensions that came through in Gaudy Night was that um, marriages will not all look the same either. And so... Some of the marriages you had this uh, the wife serving the husband, uh, and he became her entire world. And she doesn't she doesn't necessarily she doesn't come out and condemn that, but she certainly shows the ramifications of that in the lives of the woman in question. Um, and I loved how in her story Harriet and Peter come together as equals intellectual equals and neither one of them is forced to compromise who they are in order to be together yeah and um i love i love this probably blink and you'll miss it but at one stage in the book she's talking about a friend of hers one of harriet's friends um has a specific marriage and they're both interested in the same things and they're both trained in the same things and so their marriage is uh, a collaboration mm -hmm. between um people with complementary callings and I really think that that's what it means to be a help me yes yeah uh, or even if you're not on the same level of doing that at least giving each other the space and freedom to develop you know my husband loves watching football hmm. I couldn't care I mean really it's like <laughs> I'd rather stick pins in my eyes right okay I don't like football but he loves it and uh, far be it for me to stop him. On the other hand, he, he's okay with me coming down here and spending the evening talking to you. It's part of the monster's regiment. Yeah, isn't that nice? He allowed me to come down. <laughs> but, but one of the things that was kind of cool was um, when Owen and I got married, we got married as equals who believed that the other person should be free to develop or even as not. There's yes, a freedom the to not, yeah, as the Lord calls you to do. Like, I mean, if you're not here to fulfill what God put you on the earth for, uh, the least you can do is not get in the way of somebody else trying to yeah. do that. Yeah, exactly. So. And, I, and I love what Sayers has to say about calling. Um, she, she said at one stage, this is still from Our Women Human, she says, it is ridiculous to take on a man's job just in order to be able to say that a woman has done it. Yeah. Yeah. The only decent reason for tackling any job is that it is your job and you want to do it. And this yeah. really goes against a lot of what 
you know, feminism would say about, you know, oh, we need to make sure that we have more women in engineering or more women CEOs and things like that. Well, only if they're called to it. She she had some, like, I, I actually want to do some more in-depth stuff on, on what she had to say about work because she had some pretty profound stuff to say. Mm. Um, one of the things, um, this particular book here, Letters to a Diminished Church, which is yeah. um, a collection of her, her um, works on theology, she has one particular essay called Why Work? And one of the things that she said in here, she talks about how the church has really done a disservice um, because of how they treat people's callings and vocations, mm. um, particularly as they divide Christian work into being what you do if you're involved in a church program or if you're a missionary or you're serving in a pulpit or on a deacon's board or something like that. What she does is she flattens the distinction between the church elite and the layman. And she talks about um, uh, well, let me just read this a little bit here, I think. Love to hear it. Where we've become confused is in mixing up the ends to which our work is put with the way in which the work is done. The end of the work will be decided by our religious outlook. As we are, so we make. It is the business of religion to make us Christian people, and then our work will naturally be turned to Christian ends because our work is the expression of ourselves. But the way in which the work is done is governed by no sanction except the good of the work itself. And religion has no direct connection with that except to insist that the workman should be free to do his work well according to his own integrity. So yeah. she, she really talks about work as a vocation, which I think ties back into the, the um, dominion mandate quite beautifully. And that's something that's been missing from a lot of Christianity outside of um, Christian Reconstruction. Yeah, at the moment, yeah. Um, there have been times in church history when people have discovered the sanctity of ordinary work, mm -hmm. um, and it has always had an incredible effect. Um, you know, um, you had the Israelites escaping slavery in Egypt. Um, you know, that was that was that was a redemption from the inability to do meaningful work. Mm -hmm. Um, and yet the, the Israelites also illustrated the attitude that a lot of people have towards work. Um, they wanted the leeks and the onions and all the, the things that came with it as opposed to the freedom that they had been called to. And uh, one of the things that, that she talks about in there is uh, – the meaninglessness of work where people are doing things that that don't provide them any meaning and producing things that are not of any value. Mm -hmm. So uh, consumerism has, has basically taken over our society and, and in doing so it's destroyed work in the dominion mandate. Right. And because people, people work in order to live. They don't live in order to do meaningful, fulfilling yes. uh, kingdom building work. Yeah. And there's some ways in which I don't know what the answer to that is because consumerism really does grip us so 
so strong and how do we move away from that into encouraging people into pursuing callings as opposed to working to live I have a theory <laughs> which is that the answer is you've got to stop looking at work as something you do to make yourself successful in a financial sense mm -hmm. you've got to start looking at it as something that God calls you to do in order to build his kingdom and to glorify his name you know I think that's one of the reasons why Sayers' work and Lewis's work and Tolkien's work has stood the test of time in a way that those highbrow elites who looked down on them didn't. Mm -hmm. and, and that's because there was transcendent value. Yes. I mean, Tolkien, uh, going on this really difficult uh, journey to do this really horrendous, and you're losing everything. But there's heroism and there's faithfulness and there's sticking together through tough times and all these really um, Christian virtues that are expressed that people instinctively know and respond to, but which have been driven out through triviality in our, you know, through our media and social media and all these other things. But those things still hold value at the deepest level. Yeah, you've got to, people, people need to have meaning in life. And I think that's part of the Dominion Mandate as well. Um, you sent me a couple of screenshots of that Why Work essay yesterday. And mm -hmm. It was my favorite. My favorite quote was, it is the business of the church to recognize that the secular vocation as such is sacred. Christian people, and particularly Christian clergy, must get it firmly into their heads that when a man or woman is called to do a particular job of secular work, that is as true vocation as though he or she were called to do specifically religious work. The church must concern herself not only with such questions as the just price and proper working conditions, she must concern herself with seeing that the work itself is such as a human being can perform without degradation. Mm -hmm. that no one is required by economic or any other considerations to devote himself to work that is contemptible, soul-destroying, or harmful. Yes. And this was something that was stressed a lot during um, the Reformation. Um, you had the ref a lot of the Reformers talking about, you know, there's no difference between washing dishes and preaching the Word of God. That's Both, both of those things are God's work. Um, not a lot of people know that during the Crusades, one of the reasons why the First Crusade was such an incredibly huge grassroots movement that swept so many people up on such a long journey at such immense cost um, the reason was was because it was the first time that they'd been told that they could serve God in their ordinary occupation as knights. Um, they had always been told that, you know, being a knight was something sinful and wrong and that you had to join a monastery if you're going to serve God. And mm. so and so the real innovation of the Crusades was saying, no, you can you can serve God as a knight. And, you know, obviously there were problems with how that worked out in practice. Right. But th that was why it fired so many people to um, to do that. Um, I believe the reason why we have the feminist movement in large part is because um, because after the Industrial Revolution, so many of um, the jobs moved out of the home. Yeah. Um, Says wrote about it. She said, it is perfectly idiotic to take away women's traditional occupations in spinning, weaving, dyeing, catering, brewing, all that kind of thing. It is perfectly idiotic to take away women's traditional occupations and then complain because she looks for new ones. Every woman is a human being. One cannot repeat that too often. And a human being must have occupation if he or she is not to become a nuisance to the world. 
and I, I just love that her emphasis, her emphasis that work shouldn't be soul-destroying or contemptible to the person who's doing it. Um, I don't know if you've read Vishal Mangalwadi's book, The Book That Made Your World, How the Bible Created the Soul of Western Civilization. But he, he spends a lot of time talking about how in non-Christian societies, you, you often have stagnation mm-hmm. in technology um, purely because in cultures like that, Nobody minds forcing other people to do repetitive, demeaning, soul-crushing work, especially if they're women or servants. Right. And so technology stagnates, whereas in Christian societies, we, we understand that human time and labour is precious and meaningful to the kingdom of God. And so we, we look for all these ways to, um, to create t- labour-saving devices to free up more people to pursue their ordinary occupations. Well, yeah, I mean, you think about um, during the, the Industrial Revolution, a lot of people got caught up in those soul-destroying type of jobs in the factories. Mm. But now we have factories where robotics are taking over those soul-crushing and, and exactly. freeing people up from those, those types of jobs. Now, some of the people may not be happy because, like the Israelites, they like the security. Mm-hmm. the leeks and onions, but, um, you know, one of, the, one of the conclusions that I have come to in my own life is that God likes people who like to take risks. Right. Who put it all on the line there and pursue their calling, uh, maybe even in the face of adversity and opposition from those around them. But if that's what you're called to, God loves the fact that you do that and that you trust him with the results. Exactly. And, and you know, there's, there's so much trash talked about um, the millennial generation. Well, I, I'm a millennial. And I know that one of the, um, one of the peculiar mark distinctives of this generation is that um, millennials want to have jobs that are individual callings. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so many um, people of my generation are starting businesses from home or, you know, from their parents' basement <laughs> and becoming entrepreneurs in all the amazing new arenas that things like the internet has opened up to us. I'm a self-published author. You know, somebody else might have a fitness channel on YouTube or yeah. so um yeah, there's lots of creativity taking place. And, you know, what, one of the messages, uh, a couple of years ago, I uh, taught a Sunday school class of young people in their teens. I think they were around 15, 16 or something. And um, I was using a book on apologetics. I can't remember the name of it. Uh, but it was presuppositional, just in case anybody was wondering. <laughs> and... Uh, I started out the class talking to them about their purpose, why God put them here and what they were supposed to accomplish in their life. And, you know, those kids were so, after so many years of hearing Jonah and the whale and Noah and the ark and all the, you know, Bible stories that they've been fed year after year after boring year, mm-hmm. uh, to come into a Sunday school class where somebody talked about the Bible and it being applicable to their lives in terms of what is your purpose? Why did God stick you into history at this particular point in time? Mm. And what are you supposed to do with that time? How are you supposed to grow yourself as an individual under God? And um, how are you to grow 
the kingdom using your particular skill set and character qualities. And those kids just lit up like Christmas trees. It was really amazing to watch. Um, and we really need more of that type of thing to encourage young people. I think what's happening is, is fantastic. Like, this is new wine, and it won't go into the old wineskins. They, they can't hold it. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's something that's really necessary. Um, even, even today, we seem to have um, lost so much of that understanding of work and how foundationally important it is to the Christian life. Um, but here's, here's where I think Dorothy says really pushed this whole idea into a, a new, a new um, arena. Um, she points out that men and women, women as well as men, need meaningful and dignified work. Um, she, she argues this in Gordy Night. And when I first read the book when I was a teenager, I found that argument pretty confronting because of all the teaching that I had growing up in conservative evangelicalism. You know, Genesis 2 verse 18, just calling the first woman, um, she was just designed to be a helper fit or suitable for the first man. Mm -hmm. And, you know, conservative Christians have rightly concluded that wives are intended to work as a team with their husbands. But at the same time, they've decided that calling work just isn't important for women as it is for men. Um, a man might be called to anything, but a woman is only called to help whatever man might be most important to her in her life at that moment. So the father or the husband is the one who gets the vision and the woman is the one who gets to help with the vision. And, you know, I've, I've chewed over this a bit in the last few years and I, I really do think that that crosses the line into idolatry in practice. What it's mm -hmm. saying is that men have a special connection to God where they get to have a special individual calling, but the Holy Spirit doesn't talk to women that way. It, it's assuming that men have to mediate this, this calling, this foundational concept of the Christian life. Men have to mediate that to women. And that makes us dependent on men rather than on the Holy Spirit. It makes us secondary citizens in the kingdom yeah. of God. You know, there's a, I think there's a natural rhythm that is different for women in terms of calling. Um, with men, the way their calling tends to work, if they really buy into that sort of idea of having a calling and working through it, there, there may be more um, consistency in working through it throughout their life. Mm -hmm. Whereas with women, um, what you tend to see is that it, it tends to happen in seasons. Right. Now, you take a person like, um, like Dorothy Sayers, who was a very intellectual, scholarly woman, did fantastic, um, important, and influential things. And yet at 26 years old, she's talking mm -hmm. about, in so many words, wanting the white picket fence. Her, her one issue is that she didn't know what men wanted. She was asking the very same question. What do, what do men want? <laughs> Not dealing with a particular man in front of her. Um, what happens to women is that, uh, yeah, during, during the years when they get married and they start to have a family, their focus does tend to be towards the children and towards getting those children to adulthood. But something interesting happens as women enter into uh, premenopause years, as the children are growing up, they actually go through a de developmental stage in their brain. Mm 
And I've observed this. Uh, I, I, you know, I do alternative health care. So one of the things that I, I study is human anatomy and physiology. And one of the things that you have to be aware of is, is the flux and flow that happens with women. We're all familiar with what happens over the monthly cycle. But as women start to age, they go through another developmental stage and their brain actually goes through the same change that it went through at puberty. It starts to grow and change and shift. And that's why women experience brain fog and forgetfulness and stuff as they're going through that because the brain is actually in the stage of changing. What happens is after they get through that stage is they get a second wind. And I've watched this happen to my mom. I watched my aunts go through this. It was like all of a sudden there's this huge burst of creativity that took place in their lives. And when you look at somebody like Dorothy, she had the same thing happen to her. And so women may not have the same sort of consistent pattern of taking dominion in the same way that men do, but it does happen, and it's, it tends to happen in stages of life or seasons of life. Wow. So I, I'd just like to encourage all you gals who are looking at going through menopause or, or in the midst of it that, yes, there is hope on the other side. I'm through it myself, and I'm doing stuff that I would never have dreamed I could do when I was a young mom raising children. Yeah, that, that is really encouraging. Yeah. So um, I think I've seen that with, with my mom too. Like she was really focused on homeschooling us for so many years and then and now she's taught herself landscape gardening <laughs> and she's cool. doing doing a one wonderful one-woman job on our bush block. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, um, Sayers, Sayers believed that women have individual callings as well as men. And she, she, she believed that when you, there's, there's a huge amount of talking, Gordy Night, where women are talking about individual callings. And as we were saying, um, the, the different questions that that might bring up for a woman and whether she ought to um, step aside from her calling in order to focus on her family for a while or... Uh, whether her calling might be her family and and things like that what she what she definitely comes down against is the whole idea that um the the your calling has to be mediated to you by a man and that your calling can only ever be serving a man in a um you know in, in a self-effacing way um and she points out second fiddle <laughs> yeah yeah um with um in, in the kind of in the kind of model that that, that assumes that um, women can't have individual callings because they can only ever um, be serving a man and she, and she points out a, a couple of problems with this um, the first problem she points out is that men can be wrong or even w wicked right and wrong have to trump personal loyalty she spends a lot of time talking about personal loyalty mm -hmm. she's you know none of us can be totally defined by our relationship with another sinful person. Our most important relationship is with God and that, that doesn't leave us with any middle ground between serving um, a fellow human and serving God. If serving God is our primary consideration, which it should be, then we can only ever be fellow workers with other human beings. We're equal with them. We always have the right and duty to judge their actions according to the light of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. 
and there's this um, there's this fantastic scene right at the end of Gordy Night where we find out who done it, and um, and the perpetrator has this speech where she explains her motive, and she says, "You don't know what love means. It means sticking to your man through thick and thin and putting up with everything." And, and see, that's not love. That's that's idolatry. Mm-hmm. We aren't supposed to sacrifice our consciences to another person. Our consciences have to remain entirely our own. We do have the liberty to submit to other human beings, even unbelieving ones, in order to win them without a word. Um, but we don't. We, we don't have a sacred obligation to do that. Our, oblig- our, our, our sacred obligation is to be spiritual men and spiritual women, judging all things according to the word of God. Another of the problems that um, says really points out with this whole idea in Gordy Night is that um, women are quite capable of doing important cultural work. Um, not all women are going to get married. Not all women are going to be able to have children. Some women are going to have extraordinary giftings in things that aren't child raising. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and, and you have to you have to you have to take account of that when you're looking at what you ought to do in your life. Um, there's this great scene where all the professional women in the book get together and they discuss the ethics of work, and um, and, and the result of it is that one of them announces that she's going to retire from her job in order to focus on her family. So there's there's not a one size fits all answer in the book. The problem is with forcing women's consciences so that they feel that they have to marry, they have to sacrifice their individual calling to their families, that anybody who doesn't do that is either wicked or under judgment somehow. And that, and, um, and that's how you result in a lot of single women, I think, feeling so marginalised in the church because, um, because they've never been encouraged to see um, singleness as a, as a way to be building the kingdom in a way that is every bit as meaningful as um, having a family. I would say that in some churches it's actually discouraged, actively mm. discouraged. Um, you're, like your only purpose is to be either a help to your father or a help to whoever he hands you over to. Yeah. And, and so the, the um, you know, Sayers doesn't just show us the wrong thing to do in Gordy Night. She she gives us a a happy happy ending, and and it comes it comes after Harriet and Peter have been listening to a concert, and it's it's she specifically makes it a, a concert of I think Bach. They're listening to counterpoint music, mm-hmm. and um, and the characters talk about how they believe that marriage should be a counterpoint. It shouldn't be a harmony where you've got, um, you know, of course harmony is great in music, but when when you've got human beings who are fully made in the image of God, you know, you want you want two individuals with different but complementary callings who find that they're more productive together than they are apart. Mm-hmm. And, and if you can't find someone who you'll be productive with, then maybe you are being called to be alone. It isn't it isn't wrong to be someone's helper, but it is wrong to ignore questions of suitability and questions of ethics. And, and we would just like to add quite hastily that you should do this all before you tie the knot. We're not encouraging people to <laughs> part ways <laughs> just because yeah. that's not happening. <laughs> oh, exactly, yes. But, um, you know, I've, I've spent my whole life being single and, yeah. you know, it would, 
have, having discussions with um, friends about whether, you know, to what extent one should, you know, whether you should be picky, <laughs> I guess. And, um, it, and yes. The person, you, the person you tie yourself to should be important enough that you're willing to work through the difficulties of being with them and fulfilling your calling. But I mean, the, the Apostle Paul talks about that in First um, Corinthians, right? Exactly. If you're really dedicating yourself to um, serving God through your calling, the best way to do that with a single-minded devotion is to be single. Um, but there's nothing, and there's nothing wrong in being single. In fact, he encourages that kind of, you know, devotion to your calling. Um, but at the same time, he also says, well, you know, uh, it's only natural if you get married, you're going to be looking after your husband and the husband's going to be wanting to look after you. So you, you can't bring single-minded devotion to your calling as a married couple in the same way that you can if you're single and you don't have to have those considerations to deal with. Yeah, so I, I think I think the bottom line is that marriage is an is a means to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It's a, it's not an end in in itself. No. And so once you restore it to the um to its proper places, being um a means, then you can then you have the the, the right and the duty to up um to evaluate whether you sh should um, take various different opportunities. To get married based on how well it will serve the end which is to you know to um to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with god mm -hmm. um daniel defoe of robinson crusoe fame wrote a book called religious affections which is kind of a trilogue between three sisters who had various experiences being courted and married and such. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that he said in that book that always kind of stuck with me is, is that marriage is something that should, um, like the purpose of marriage is to help the other one to draw closer to God in heaven. So we should be yeah. helping each other fulfill what God has put on us, not yeah. just serve ourselves in it. Yeah, and um, and our and our vocation, our calling in life, is one of the ways that we draw close to God and obey Him and please Him. Mm -hmm. And um, the Dominion mandate was was given to us, and and it still needs to be fulfilled. It's something that God has called every person to on this earth. The trick mm -hmm. is trying to figure out what it is that God wants you to do with it. Exactly. I love how it says just brings all these ideas together in mm -hmm. especially in um gaudy night which is such an amazing rich novel and it's we've been talking for a bit over an hour now so it might be a good time to um wrap it up wrap it up we we do want to do a second episode on says because she had so much to say so yeah if no, yeah if nothing else we'd like to encourage you to start reading some of her books like she's just yes she is really worth reading and you know i would hate for you to miss something that that's this good definitely yeah go on go and read some dorothy says and we'll schedule up a part two soon until then thank you for listening to episode 10 of the monstrous regiment
Thank you for listening to The Monstrous Regiment. We hope this podcast inspires and equips you to go and exercise dominion for Christ's kingdom. Terrible as an army with banners. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.